0: Scripture today is from Nehemiah 6, 1 through 7, verse 4. Now Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sambalot and Geshem said to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecathurim in the plain of Ono but they intended to do me harm. And I sent, a messenger to them. I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sandalot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you inventing them out of your mind, for they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetebel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambla, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. so the wall was finished on the twenty fifth day of the month, iliel in fifty two days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly. In their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God moreover in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Ham, the son of Berechiah as his wife Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys, we are back in this story. Uh, this, I, I love this story, this, okay, so we went last week, some of you may have read this in the weekly, uh, it it just struck me, we went last week from courtroom drama, right, and now we are in, like, political thriller, we are in, uh, we are in, like, The Fugitive, right, we're in, like, a John Gresham novel that's spun out of control, and we've got political intrigue, and we've got, like, we've got, uh, sedition, we've got, uh, priest that's been paid off by the enemy. We've got an insidious villain who's just going to stick with it to the end. This is such a powerful story. Uh, the way that the way that Nehemiah has played out, I don't know if you've noticed this, but chapter by chapter, here's the rhythm of the first seven chapters of Nehemiah. It goes, building resistance, building resistance, building resistance. So you'll notice of the themes of the sermon, we've gone from what it means to build together, what it means to heed the word of God, what it means to do good work, and then we've gone to the enemy's voice, right? How does the enemy work? How does he think? What is he doing? Because both there is always an ever-present God's work before us, and there is always an ever-present the enemy seeking to tear it down. Those things, are, those things are constant in this life that we live. Today, I, I, I jumped into this and I go, God, what is the word that you have for me for our people? What, is, what, is, what are you asking me to say? And I came up with this question. This, this to me was the key question, not only of this week, but this text. Why keep going, church? Why keep going? This week was exhausting, Uh, emotionally exhausting, physically exhausting for me. Uh, I have a lightness of being today, but man, some of this week, I had such a heavy heart. I felt it was a week of deflation. It was a week of defeat. It was like the wind had been taken out of me, right? That my feelings were kind of gone. I felt like it was like a fruitless plodding, all right? And there's some silver linings, right? Those stimulus checks came in, all these things happened, but it's like, and all of that, it just, it just reminded me of like the fragileness, right, of life. The fragileness of our own efforts. When we, when we seek to rely on what it is we're doing, how easily it is to be frustrated when we fail. Why keep going in the midst of personal failure? And th- God, guys, this is the word. God has not failed. We, we are dealing with just personal failure all around us. We're dealing with global, quote, failure, right? That's just kind of like, this just tanking that's happening. And this week, it just hit on a big level for me. And this, this story tells us something extremely important. This is a story about resistance, but it's a story about perseverance and doing God's great work. God's great work. And God has not failed. Like Ron said when he prayed, God has a plan in all of these things. God has a plan in the minutia of your life. God has a plan in every detail. Everything is choreographed. And he will not and has not failed. In fact, he's already won. We're fighting a battle in which the enemy is grasping at straws. And so here's how it works. I want to walk us through. I want to keep things kind of simple today. I want to start with this. The enemy, Tobiah is the enemy here, Geshem the Arab, uh, Sanballat, right? They are surrounding, if we remember, they're surrounding northeast, south. They're surrounding Jerusalem, right? And Jerusalem, if you recall in the last two chapters, Jerusalem went from building while they were guarding, like this level of just constant vigilance, right? Working through the night, like all hands on deck, just a constant awareness, And that was all from people on the outside. They were looking out and they were saying, all of these people do not want our city to be rebuilt. They do not want the people of God to have a place. They do not want us to have a home. They do not want this temple with God's presence to be here. They don't want any of that. And then they turn around and even within their ranks, right, they discover this corruption, this rot and this pus. Like what, if I was Nehemiah, I would be in this place hopelessly overwhelmed, right? deflated. Even my own people, even the nobles, even the people that are supposed to be leaders, the people that have wealth, the people that are supposed to be, the people funding and supporting and creating stability are corrupt. It would would seem as though Nehemiah should be hopelessly overwhelmed. And look at how he reacts. Look at the, the power of how he reacts in these three different Assaults, right? There's three different assaults that happen here. There's three different tactics that the enemy is using here. And I, and I think that these are very relevant for us as we think about, as we go about our week, as we're listening to the, the attacks that come to us, both outside, both what are called overt attacks, and these covert attacks. They follow in this story. There's there's sort of three categories I want to put them in. The first one is distraction. I'm gonna call that the bait. Distraction. The second one is fear. That's the woods, right? You take the bait, soon enough you find you're in the woods. And what happens in the woods, right? You hear voices behind every tree, right? It's like every horror movie, every story, the dark, every tree turns into a monster. There's the woods, right? And then the snare. The enemy wants to get us to sin. So we're going to walk through the bait, the woods, and the snare. Distraction, fear and getting us to sin. We're going to start with distraction. What happens in, in chapter six, what happens in these first few verses, right? They basically come to him and they deliver a letter and they say, Nehemiah, we want you to come out from your city. We want to bait you out of your city. And we want you to come to us on the plain of Ono, probably some kind of neutral, hard to defend area, kind of an open plain. So it's somewhere where you could do diplomacy or have two leaders meet, right? Come out to the plain of Ono. And Nehemiah flat denies them, flat denies them, not just once, but four, five times, right? They sent to me four times in this way and in the same manner. And, this, and, and then in the fifth time, they changed their tactics. So the first four times, they are just seeking to distract Nehemiah. The first tool, the first tactic of the enemy is to distract you. Think about your week. Think about the ways in which the enemy has distracted you from the mission of God, from the work of God, distracted you just from spending your time in the presence of God, thinking about your life as moving through the presence of God. Have you been distracted by that this week? The first tool of the enemy, you guys, is distraction, and he will stick at it time and time again because he knows the human heart is so prone to distraction, that Nehemiah gives us some tips, right? Nehemiah Nehemiah gives us some practical, this book is profoundly practical. And Nehemiah just ignores the distractions. But how does he ignore them? First of all, he knows where the distractions are coming from. He knows that they are coming from someone who is not pursuing the kingdom of God like he is. They're coming from the enemy. Anyone Anything that is not pursuing the kingdom of God, that is asking you to go away from your work following God, being a disciple of God and the processes and the values of God, anyone that's asking you to go out for their thing is not part of the kingdom of God. They're distracting you if they pull you away from that central mission, right? Right? Do you know that the enticements of sin that are put there are done so by those who intend to do you harm, is a question that James Hamilton puts in this commentary. Do you know that? I think so many of the times we think distractions are sort of a a neutral thing, but we can't just write off all distractions as neutral. We have to understand what is this new stimulus that's coming at us? What is this new impulse? What is this new idea? What is this new proclivity? What is this new temptation? What is it? What is this new comfort? What are all of these things we have to be able to discern? Obviously, Nehemiah listens and says, what is this thing? Where does it come from? What is it asking me to do? Do we do that with our distractions? Oh, man, that's a, that is a convicting question. Do we do that with our distractions? Do we, do we listen and hear a distraction and, and actually identify what it's doing in our heart? where it's coming from, who's saying it, what they're seeking. So that's the first question. The bait is distraction. And Nehemiah denies it four times by keeping his hand at work, by having good priorities. And he can do that even though Nehemiah is in a week that seems a little bit like the week I felt this week, probably a lot worse, way worse. Let's be honest, way worse than the week I had, right? Where he is has every reason to be hopelessly overwhelmed and he sticks with it. How does he do that? He has eyes to see the good progress so far and the necessary work that remains to be done. The work that he's already put his hands to, he commits and he says, I know that this is good work and I know that there's still work to be done. I can't give up right now. It says in in verse one, Right. It talks about this. It says. When they came. Right. And and they approached. They approached when. When I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it. Although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. So when does the enemy come to do the most intense barrage of distractions? The enemy comes to do those distractions when the enemy is threatened. When the enemy goes, the wall is almost built, guys, they've almost done it. Let's get in there and let's just fire and fire and fire and let's do everything we've got, right? Let us try every possible distraction on this this good person's mind, this God-following, God-fearing, God-honoring person. Let's distract them every way we can possibly think of because time is running out. Pretty soon it's going to be a lot harder, right? Right? He says, there, to them there was no breach left in it, but he knew that the doors and the gates needed to be set up still. And he tells them, he tells the enemy this distraction. he says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I don't know about you, but when's the last time you looked at a distraction and you said, no distraction, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. <laughs> the work I'm doing is too great to be distracted by you. And how often was that work you were doing something that you could firmly say Is God's work, and I I don't get super churchy on this. I'm not saying school isn't God's work. I'm not saying that your family isn't God's work. I'm saying put those things together holistically, breathe and live and know, and do those such things in such a way that they are God's work. Do school in such a way that school is God's work. Do work in such a way that it's God's work. Do your family. Do, all, do your community, do your neighborhood, do your rest, do your recreation, do your exercise, do it all as if it is God's work. That's what allows Nehemiah to say, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down for you? right? I think sometimes in our humble hearts, we think, well, God's about humility, right? And I need to have a humble heart. So that means even the things that are wrong, I need to be, I need to listen and I need to entertain those. You know, there might be a good idea. No, sometimes there's no good idea in something. Sometimes it's so abundantly obvious it's a bad idea, right? You're just playing with fire. There are things in your life that are like that. And you need to be like Nehemiah and say, I cannot come down. The work I'm doing, is, the time that I would spend on that is a waste. The time that I'm spending on this is beautiful. God is calling me to this right now. So that's the first act, the bait, right? And then when the bait doesn't work, what happens? He pulls Nehemiah into what I'm calling the woods. He calls him into a place of fear. How does he do it? He brings an open letter. an open. This is the sedition part. Sedition is kind of this word that means we're going to revolt, right? It's an open letter. An open letter is something that is written and proclaimed. It's sort of broadcast. It's saying, look, there's there's sort of a vote of no confidence among certain people here. That we're going to proclaim and read this letter. And in this letter, we're going to give reasons and suggestions to try and build a force against you. We're going to plant all of these ideas in other people in such a way that they hopefully will rise up and the enemy will now have allies amongst you because the enemy is spreading lies. So it's clever, right? It's really clever. They come and they say, all right, we're going to come into the city and we're going to proclaim with an open letter. And here's what we're going to say. We're going to say, we think, we actually think, Nehemiah, you're doing this because it's all about your power trip. We think you're doing this because you intend to rebel, and you're building this wall, and you want to become their king, and you have even set up prophets around you to proclaim this like you're some God-honoring man. We know, the jig is up. We know what you're up to. And and, and they basically say it to, to, to hammer in fear around him, both to say, Nehemiah, uh, we want everyone to believe your motives are not pure. We're going to suggest ways in which other people could feasibly believe that you're not pure of heart. And then we're also going to suggest to you that, that we have the power to go to the king of Persia and tell him that you're up to no good. And in fact, he should squash you. So in all ways, they're coming at him and they're trying to plant fear. And Nehemiah says this directly. He says in verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us. And Why? Why did they want to frighten them? The exact same reason as the bait, to get them to stop doing the work. So the next time we hear from the enemy fear, this kind of fear like the woods, right? Where where the trees have all come up around you, where you're looking around and everything's a monster, right? You have to name that like Nehemiah. You have to say, you want to frighten me. You want to frighten me. And then I will pray like Nehemiah, oh God, strengthen my hands. And don't give up the good work. When the fear is coming at you to distract you, to get you away from the work, when you can see what you're doing and you know it's godly, and other people around you can come and reassure you of that, and then you can name that, you will not retreat out of fear. See, the bait is trying to pull Nehemiah into their mess, to distract him and pull them towards the enemy. Then when that doesn't work, the enemy comes up against Nehemiah. When he can't be distracted to just willfully walk into to sin and to entertaining and to wasting his time with petty, useless things, then it invades his life and starts to create fear. He can't get away from it then. It's trapped all around him. The only way for him to stop is to stand firm. But first, it tries one more thing. First, the enemy tries one more thing. It sets up the snare. The snare is probably one of the most insidious. Because once Nehemiah has been confronted with this fear, then even amongst his own people, one has been bought out. Right, Verse 10, it says, Now when I went into the house of Shemiah, the son of Deliah, son of Medabal, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. This is this is likely a priest. This is likely a man of God who had who had just said, hey, Nehemiah, I, I want to talk to you as one of his citizens, right? So Nehemiah doesn't know what's up. He goes to his home probably in, in sort of a private time, right? I could imagine this being at night. And he says, He says, meet with me, come and meet with me, sit down with me. And at using his priestly powers and his prophetic churchy know-how and all of his God-talking language, he tries to convince Nehemiah to do something that is completely unbiblical. A man under the auspices of being somebody you could trust still Nehemiah must discern, even within his own ranks, even with his own, the, the city of God, we're calling it, right within his church, within his people. He has to have discernment. And he says, no, you know how we can't do that? I've read the Pentateuch, I've read Numbers. You can't go in there. Not just anybody can go in the temple, duh. Like, I'll die in the presence of God. That's not allowed. God has been firm about that. He has a command that I cannot do that. I will not do that, even if you prophetically say that I should do that as somebody who's in in it for my best interest. And he says, in fact, because you've begun to talk this way, I now understand that something is fishy here, that you've been bought out. So what happens is when when the enemy can't get Nehemiah to come out with the bait, when they can't get him to retreat from fear, when they come at him, then they try, him, they try to get him to run into self-protection. You can't be undone by fear. If you can't be distracted, the enemy will say, look, the only way to really protect yourself, your things, your stuff, your successes, is to just break this one little thing. It'll be in private. Nobody will ever know. Right? In fact, I'm in your church and I'm telling you that this is the only way to do it. right? No one will ever figure we've got this. Just take care of yourself. You need a breather. You need a break. Protect yourself by sinning, is what this guy is telling Nehemiah. There's three things for us to be aware of for the enemy. And that one, man, that one is tough. Because that one's easy to justify. First of all, you have a collaborator to work with. maybe a man you trust, a woman you trust, who's sin, it's OK. It's really okay. It, you've had it hard, right? This sin is private, secret. in, in all senses, maybe it's of maybe it's negligible. Maybe we could write off. And look, it really will help you out. It's a surefire protection. This could be all kinds of things for us, right? This could, be, this could be hoarding, right, in our current situation, right? This could be just hoarding, taking care of yourself, keeping things from other people, right? But you but you've protected yourself. It could be a, a sin of comfort that you do in private. Oh, it's fine. I just need to do it to get by, right? It, it could be a, a relationship that you've built in such a way where you have a certain codependency And you both kind of agree that certain sins are okay. This is just what these are our vices, right? But we're good people. In public, we're good. These don't affect us. We get along just fine. Nehemiah says, No, this is a snare. It's trying to get me to sin. And he says, It's getting me to sin. Verse 13, he says, To act in a way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me in order to taunt me. See, the devil just wants to get a foothold to in some way whether it's through distraction or fear or self-protection, he wants to get you just get, get just get his fingers on you. Because once he can, once he can get a little bit, then he can start to play this game and he can taunt you and he can say, "Look, you're a failure." He'll bring you out into public with those sins, expose them, and then hammer you and say, you are a failure. You should be guilty and ashamed. And Nehemiah knows to give no foothold to that. So what does Nehemiah do? He stays put. In all of these scenarios, Nehemiah stays put. I don't know about you, but my fear with that is that it will be perceived as arrogance. That I'll seem arrogant. Maybe self-righteous, right? I feel like maybe I need to please everybody around me. Well, they might have a good point. The enemy may have somebody say. I should go out to the plane of Ono and I should hear them out, right? I, I should, I should at least hear what they're up to because you never know. You know, there might be something I'm missing. There's a certain humbleness of heart there that, that's good, but there's also there's also just a a lack of spine. A lack of confidence in what you do know. You need people around you who who will who will say, "Why would you do that?" Right? Like Nehemiah says, "Why would I do that? Why would I go into the temple? That makes literally not an ounce of sense. I'll just burn up in an instant." It's in the Bible. Why would I do that? So this this kind of staying put is not an arrogance. Nehemiah is not arrogant here. Nehemiah is discerning. He knows. He's tested. As it's put in the New Testament, test the things around you, right? To know where they are coming from. Test them. And so that moves on. The enemy baits and lures. It plants snares. And how does Nehemiah fight He stays put in one specific way to start with. At the end of each of these sort of volleys from the enemy, there's a short prayer, right? He says in verse Nine, he says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. So amidst overwhelm, amidst an open letter, amidst people just proclaiming that he's a phony. He sticks with it quietly, humbly, stays on that wall building. You could see Nehemiah kind of lonely up there on the wall building as these people have gathered around him to suggest all these lies. And rather than step up in pride and puff himself up and defend himself, which would be the natural inclination, right? Of of somebody with enough ego and enough wherewithal to build to take this whole thing on in the first place. You think Nehemiah would stand up and puff up and say, you know, like just rage out at them and tell them to get out of there. He's humble. And he he just he, he says just the basic, most simple truth, right? He says, these are inventions of their own mind, you guys. And then he gets, he gets back to work. He prays, Strengthen my hands. So Nehemiah, not for one instant, has thought that anything he's doing is coming from his own strength. He's asking God to strengthen his hands. And then, secondly, after this whole snare incident in the temple, this entrapment, he says, Oh God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Nadiah, There had probably been other temptations is what this is saying. Other people who had brought him in. And the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid, remember Tobiah and Sambalot. He's saying, remember them. He's saying, I am angry. I'm angry right now. It is not unrighteous to be angry against the enemy. But in his anger, he does not sin. In his anger, he says, God, remember them and do with them as you will, God. Remember them. So the first thing he does when he stays put is he prays. He prays for his own strength. He prays as an outlet for his anger so that he will not sin. Part of staying put for Nehemiah is not sinning. Sometimes the best we can do when the enemy comes at us is shut up and not sin. I I don't know if any of you are out there like that. If you're a little bit impulsive, if you find yourself in a place where... uh, You just get yourself in trouble by spouting your own mouth off. Perhaps the best thing to do is just be quiet and don't sin. Maybe even get a prayer out if you can. Right? This is this is how Nehemiah is guiding us. How can Nehemiah have this kind of resolve? So it's one thing for me to just right right now. You would say, John, I'm just kind of giving you're just kind of giving me a how-to. I mean, these are nice. These are practical points. These help me. I understand how the enemy works. I can be on guard for these things. But where do I get the resolve? You said, you said Nehemiah prays to God to strengthen. Where is he getting this resolve? How is he persisting? He knows that he has been given God's great work. God's great work. Nehemiah is not doing his work. Nehemiah has every reason there's every reason to believe in this story, that Nehemiah could just be doing Nehemiah's work, pet project, a, a, a thing that he knows, man, this is going to look so good when I get this wall done, man, I am going to be a rock star when I get this done. This is like my calling card. Look at Nehemiah and look what Nehemiah did. No, you have to read the whole story and see the context of this. There's, look where Nehemiah came from. Hamilton, in this commentary, puts it this way. He says, Nehemiah was doing a great work, yet compare what Nehemiah was doing in Jerusalem to the work he had been doing back in Persia, where he was cutbearer to the king, the king of the known world. Being the king's cutbearer probably meant he had some say in who worked in the palace. He probably oversaw everything that came in contact with the king. Nehemiah was a high-level overseer in the capital city at the king's residence. The king had to trust him. He probably had the king's ear. Nehemiah left all of that to go work on this broken down rubble of a place on the outskirts of the empire. Where he was at work rebuilding this wall with maybe 3,000 Jews living at the city at this point. The walls were broken down. The enemies threatened from the outside. And he said, I am doing a great work. The work Nehemiah was doing in Jerusalem was not Great because the world thought it was significant. just want to say that again. The, the work that Nehemiah was doing, the work that we are doing in the church as Christians, living with our families, as people of the book, following scripture, as the people discipling in the way of Jesus, is not great because the world thinks it's significant. To stop looking at the world to praise you for it. Nehemiah is over and over challenged. And the only way he can sustain it is because he has known. he He has a total vision, like we talked about last week, the holy vision, right? He has this total vision where he can say, no, I know that God asked me to do this. And I know that we will finish this. I can taste it. We just have to hang the gates. Now is not the time to get off this wall, to stop doing this work, because this is God's great work. There's there's a line that I saw, a pastor I follow on Twitter that I loved. He said, where adrenaline ends, the spirit begins. And I think this was like his little confession, because uh, as he probably knows as a pastor, as I've certainly felt, as all of us has, have felt as workers, we can just power through to a certain extent, right? We can power through. And at a certain point when it all gives out, we then rely on the spirit, or how about this? I liked hearing this. Dallas Willard, who's known for his work on spiritual formation, said, God's address is at the end of our rope. Love that. God's address, God lives at the end of your rope, you guys. That's where He <coughs> is. So when it's all getting overwhelming and it's all crazy, to quote Star Wars, stay on target, right? When you get in that Death Star trench and you're going down, it's right at the end, and you just gotta stay focused. Stay on target, is what Nehemiah is saying. I'm gonna stay on target, right? The adrenaline has probably given up, right? I'm I'm praying. God strengthened my hands. I've given it my all. I'm at the end of my rope. But God has a plan and I'm gonna see it through. He's given me the way to do it, and I'm gonna trust that he will get a good work done through me. So I will not sin. That's what Nehemiah is saying here. He's saying, I am more process-minded than product-minded. I will trust that God will build this wall. It is not up to me, Nehemiah, to get this wall done. But because I am process-minded, I will not sin in a way that takes me away from a good work. When we are so close to being done. And it would serve every purpose for you as the enemy to have me stop right now. It would serve every purpose for you to deflate me and dissuade me from the good work in doing. So I will not do that thing. Right? It's powerful. It can be hard for us to do that. But Nehemiah is not doing it because Nehemiah has such a, such a strong resolve and a great ego. Although he probably does have those two powerful things in him. He has natural leadership skills. But he's saying, no, God, strengthen me. Your work is greater. He has a bold and stubborn confidence. And he does that not because the wall in and of itself is just some great gift of God that's a good thing. No, the wall is part of the process thinking. To check yourself in your life and ask, am I doing God's work? Ask yourself, am I building walls that are going to protect God's people? Am I creating a space where God's people will flourish? Am I serving others above myself for the goodness of God in my life? Am I doing that in my workplace? Am I building up to protect God's people? Am I calling people into the city walls? Am, am I asking for people? Am I, am, I, am I presenting Christ in such a way, Jesus in such a way that he's winsome? In all ways, am I building a stable? Am I standing on a stable rock? And am I proclaiming a good God? And am I fostering and laboring? As Heather was singing, our labors are not in vain. So your job may not be to build a wall, right? But your job is done in a dedication to God's name and his promises and his people. So in your life, you can check right now. You can say, what am I doing in my life? I sent out this week in the weekly a habit check thing. I loved it because it's so simple. It was like a plus and minus on your habits. What in my habits are dedicated to God's name, to God's promise, and to God's people? right? Whether that's in my family, whether that's in my heart, whether that's in my house that I share or my, my neighborhood block or in my workplace. Where is it that I'm doing that so that I know that I am doing a good work? Because God says if you're doing a good work, I am with you. So you can be starting with our two frequent failures for us as Christians, just quick applications, two really frequent failures that we make. One is we just never start God's work in the first place. We've been distracted before the work's even ever begun. And the distraction has taken us on this like loop from one thing to the other to the other. And pretty soon we don't even know how we got there, right? It's like the Twitter wormhole or the Facebook wormhole or the Netflix wormhole. And like pretty soon we come out on the other end and the whole night's gone the enemy has just succeeded in probably distracting you. I'm not saying every time that happens, but I'm saying you know what I mean, right? There are times when you go to intentionally rest, to be in community, and there are times when you just get carried away. And there's the night. Sorry, bye. Right? Like he, He's saying a lot of the times that we don't get it is we're just not starting a good work because we're too intimidated by the bigness of it. We think we have to do it all. And secondly... We are not staying with God's work in the moment, in the moment where we are most close to seeing fruit. Sometimes we give up. And so that brings us to the last thing, which is that the key in all of this, you guys, if you haven't snipped it out by now, the key in all of it is a certain kind of constant discernment. So the last little section of this chapter is really looking at this. It says, the wall was finished, verse 15 on the 25th day. In 52 days, that is not long. In less than two months, they have rebuilt this wall. They had all hands on deck. They blitzed this thing. And when the enemy heard of it, all of the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Gosh, that's good. They, they were deflated. We can deflate the enemy. We can deflate Satan and all of his power, we can deflate the temptations, we can deflate all of that with these milestones, with the good work being done, with sticking to the process, with staying on target. And they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And they perceived it because it was true. They perceived it because there was no way for this wall to be built that quickly without God being at work in these people in some way. But then get this right? Tobiah crouches at the door. First Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Or Genesis 4, 6, right? Cain has just slaughtered Abel in his anger. And God says, the enemy is crouching at the door Crouching and waiting for you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching for you in your anger, but you, Cain, must master it. I mean, God's actually giving Cain a lot of grace right there. He's saying, Cain, don't you see? You're about to sin in your anger. You must master that. And you do that by being sober-minded, being watchful, being being discerning, testing all things. Because... There will always be an enemy crouching at your door in this life, right? There will always be this constant. You think, hooray, the wall has been built. Everything's good. Happy endings. And then again, we get this wise biblical take. The Bible is always so surprising, you guys. So true to reality. There's a win. And then right after the win, there's a win amidst reality. How many times in our life do we get through? We just want to get to that thing and we get to it and we think it's going to solve everything. And then look, there's more wreckage, more problems, more pain, more hurt. Now this has gone wrong. Nehemiah does not let that deflate him. He's in a constant state of vigilance and he tackles it in this way. He relies on community to support. He delegates and he creates a community, a city of God under surveillance. Think of this as like Baghdad post-invasion, right? Like I, I remember seeing news feeds of this post-9-11, the invasion of Iraq. And like Baghdad was in this place of just like constant surveillance, right? Constant. The, the gates were limited and they're opening and closing. Everything's set up and structured in a certain way, right? There's a, there's a sense of holding on to a space and a time. Now, I'm not condoning whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not getting political here. I'm just saying as a, as a metaphor, right, <laughs> to, to see like these gates are placed these guards are put to watch over it and it's a state it's a city under constant surveillance nehemiah is saying there are enemies in our midst there are people who want us to do harm whether it's the terrorists right there's this terrorist kind of mentality Tobiah's got the ear of people in our community He's actually in married and there's family connections and and they actually think he's a good guy. It says, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. So there are people within the city still that believe the enemy does good things. That you should actually listen to him. He has wise things to say. And that they're reporting his words, Nehemiah's words to him. So there are people that are totally in the pocket still in the church, in the city, in this space, in Christian communities, right? That are listening full on to the enemy still. And so Nehemiah is saying the work is not done. He's saying the enemy is crouching and we need to have a city that's under constant. So that's how i going to do that. I'm going to delegate. So he gives his brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the city, and he gives them charge and they set up guards and they open the gates after dawn. They open <clears> them late. They close them early. And they have guards appointed among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all over the place, everywhere. So what he's saying, this is a two-level thing. This is, I think, an internal metaphor as well as an external one. Our lives ought to be set up in such a way that there are checkpoints. (laughs) That we have to go through checkpoints to check, to discern, whether that's in your own life setting up checkpoints or whether it's accountability partners or people you tell everything to, people you know you must confess to to keep that relationship, that friendship. You do something sinful, you know you must come to them or you won't be able to come to them because that's what it means to be a friend. Areas in your life where you you have maybe alarms or blocks or things that, that, that help you keep good habits, Whatever you need to do, the most draconian of measures that you need to do so that you will not sin, God is cool with that. He wants that. Right? Not because He wants you to be miserable, because He doesn't want you to sin. He, has, he, has a, he wants a vigilant shepherd's eye over His people. So, you could listen to all of what I just said. You could say, okay, John, I get how they attack. I get that I need to understand, and yes, I'm doing a good work, and I'm starting to investigate what that looks like. And yes, I see that I need to discern more. I I see that all of that. And you would be in a place where you would be completely getting the wrong message right now. Because in all of that, you would say, I need to be stronger. I need to work harder. I, I need to better sense the enemy. I need to have better defenses, better structures, better systems. That's half of it. The discernment comes from knowledge and understanding and from practice. So those things are all true. How did Nehemiah knew? know that it was bad to go into the temple? He knew scripture. Nehemiah wasn't a priest among the people of Israel. He was a Persian, Israelite-born Persian, working for the king. Most of his work and time was spent in that milieu and doing those things, right? He probably wasn't thinking all the time in his life and having people around him saying "You shouldn't go into the <clears> temple. <throat> he knew it because he was reading the word. It saturated him. So that's, that's half of it. But this kind of self-righteousness will actually cloud all of your discernment. You will not be able to discern if you miss the heart. Right? We are asked to have a contrite and humble heart, a lowly state of being, a lowly attitude, to be growing in peace and strength and hope in what in Jesus not in ourselves. right? This week taught me one thing. I stepped into working on this this week and I said, God, I have one of these feelings right now that I am not even worthy to do this. I, I have that feeling over me. And I heard God say, I, I heard this from the word reading this. John, that's where I want you. I want you in a place where you say, I can't do this on my own. I fail at this all the time. I don't want you to beat yourself up. I want you to sit there and I want you to see that that's why you need me. That that's why why I'm here guiding you. It was never about you being able to figure this out and make this happen on your own. It was never about you being more moral and more perfect and more self-righteous so that you could get into heaven or save other people or take care of people or any of those seemingly good things. It's about you getting that you're working with me and I'm doing all of it with you. I'm strengthening you. I'm getting the wall built. And I'm asking you to just keep on keeping on, right? With a humble heart so that failures are smaller, so that successes don't puff us up. So that true things will be true and false things will ring false. If we don't have this kind of humble, contrite spirit, then we will have a twisted sense of right and wrong. We will have a twisted sense of what is good and what is bad. Pride is your weakness against the enemy. When you think you have all of the answers and that you are accomplishing it, and if somebody else gets in your way, it's all going down, you're proud. But if like Nehemiah, you can say, no, I need to stick with this. I can see you're the enemy God is doing a great work here, and he needs me to help him on it. That's a totally different attitude. Nehemiah's weakness becomes his strength. He's saying, I'm I'm in obedience. It's weakness. I don't get to call the shots around here. Remember the previous chapter? He said, I just read my contract. It looks like I can't do all of these things, so I'm not going to do any of them, even though they would benefit me, even though I would be stronger and more powerful and more able with them. I'm going to throw my own finances at this because God has asked me to obey him. So sometimes the obedience that we're in and building the wall is going to look like small, humble obedience. We're going to feel so useless, you guys. We're going to feel so stupid sometimes. So put in our place. Because pride is being killed in us so that we would have a certain kind of weakness that would become our strength. A reliance on God, on Jesus, who, who knows that because of all of the things we're trying to do in our moralism and our goodness, we are condemning ourselves further because we're just kidding ourselves that we can cleanse our own sin. It's just We're just joking our whole life away. If we think that he says, look around you, look at look at your week, just look at today, look at this morning, right? See where you have fallen so short and, and just need me. Love that I'm here with you. I'm here with you. I just want you to lean on my shoulder. You don't need more. You have enough. So do you see, this, this is where I want to take us. Do you see first that the work of your life Is God's work is there distractions or fears that you are tired of haunting you pulling you away are there ways that you're protecting yourself and you're actually sinning that your pride in self-protection and making sure you're safe you've put it under the auspices of, of maybe care But actually, if you get down to the root of it, you can see, no, I'm just scared. I'm not ready to rely on God. Name those things. See that they're coming from the enemy. See that they're they're meant to distract you from your work. And if you see that your life is being more and more on track, be encouraged that the lures, that those areas that you've identified as baits and snares are a good sign. (laughs) persevere. Don't get so deflated in constantly having to fight the battle. It's the sign that you can see allure or bait or fear for what it is, is a sign that you are on the right path. You would have, you wouldn't call those things bad things if you weren't on a good path. So be encouraged by that and know and ask yourself, do do I see the things that I am doing in my life as my life as a total whole entity? Am I about, god's great work and am i letting him do it and partnering with him in that and then know this know this and take so much comfort in this that you can safely pray remember me god strengthen my hands and remember them god according to the things that they did that you don't have to in your anger sin against other people you don't have to puff up in your righteousness and exact justice because Jesus could have exacted every bit of justice on you. God could have brought his wrath down on you. and Instead, he brought his son to take away all of that, even for the deeds you did just yesterday. And he said, I call you a son and a daughter. I call you one of mine and I love you. So go and love. Make others bigger than yourself. Make their things better than your things. Because you have nothing to prove anymore. Jesus has won. The enemy, everything he's doing, is in his death throes as he's going down. See that for what it is and ignore him. Those things need to go. Because it's like it's like this. The only way that we can truly stick it through with those things is to know that Jesus does not intend for this to be everything. He's loved and he's saved us for something better. There there is a great work that we are doing. There is a goodness being worked out, right? God works all things out for the good of those who love him because he's bringing a new heaven and a new earth. He's bringing a place where there isn't that kind of pain. Heather, when you were singing, there was, I think it was your labor is not in vain, there was talking about just the goodness that is coming. I think we lose sight in our vision of what is. We lose sight and we say, This is all there is, right? And we get baited and we get lured into thinking we just need to protect ourselves. We need to sin and just make the best of this life because this is all there is. That is self-protection. Instead, we have total vision where we can say there is a new earth and a new heaven coming and they are good. And everything that I'm doing now is for a greater purpose. And I am not bringing that. Jesus is bringing that. He's already brought it through his death and his cross, and it's now being worked out. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would encourage us in all of this with so much hope and confidence. God, it is so easy for us to get hard on ourselves for our failures. God, show us that that's our pride. God, help us to see and discern those. Help us to see and discern the enemy and pray and thank you and move on and desire you more, God, because of that. God, this, this time is hard and you're asking us to persevere in ways that if we do not see the end that is almost here, and if we work as if it will never come, the enemy will win in his death throat attempt us to give up. God, I pray that you would give us the perseverance to stick through in this time especially. And in all the times in our life, God, you give us the stubborn confidence, like Nehemiah had, God, let that be a let that be a guiding light to us. Strengthen our discernment. Strengthen our ability to hear and to see and to test. Do that by lavishing us with knowledge from your word, with insight. Give us partners in that with each other to tackle those things to find and mine your word for such good things for our life. Give us people to do that with. God, and allow us to proclaim in boldness the goodness that you have, to bring people in the walls of this great city that you are building. God, we pray and thank you that that you've put us here. This is not even of our own that we're here today. You've done all of this, and God, we thank you for that. Amen.